the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome back to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Setter. I'm your host. And we are excited to be starting season two. It is January 2022. And for our first episode of this new season, we are excited and honored to have Dr. Steve Davis, our new CEO of Cincinnati Children's, join us in the studio today for a conversation. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to be the first guest of the new year in my new role. It feels like it's new beginnings all around. And I say new, but you've been in this new role for a couple of months since November. Is that about right? It will be two months on Saturday. Okay. Not that I'm counting. Not that you're counting. Um, well, we are so glad that you've joined us today. Just to get to know you a little bit is what we're hoping to achieve today. Um, and one of the things I, I think where we'd probably like to start is that as you've um, shared internally or with employees about yourself over the last couple of months, you've often used five words to describe yourself. And I was hopeful that maybe you would share those five words with us and a little bit about each of them and why they're important to you. Sure, Kate. Let me put it in a little bit of context on where the five words came from. Uh, a few years back when I was uh, an emerging leader at the Cleveland Clinic. I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go with my future. And I took this leadership uh, program at the Weatherhead Business School. And one of the components of it was to write out your personal vision for your own future. And it really caused me to think very deeply about what I wanted to do, who I was, I always considered myself a values-based leader, and this work really solidified that. And so through that work, I ended up coming up with five words that describe me, uh, that I believe that I am, and how I uh, view myself. And, you know, it's husband, father, pediatrician, learner, and teacher. And um, I have always been a learner. As a young child and throughout my life, I have always wanted to know how things work, why they are the way they are. And I remember growing up really frustrating some of the adults around me, always <laughs> asking, why are you doing that? How do you do that? What is behind it? Um, but it was because I have this intense curiosity to understand how things work. And that desire to understand how things work has really driven my professional life. And then as I grew into uh, different roles I, and I started to want to give back, I started being more and more of a teacher as well. And those two things have really guided a lot of my professional life. Uh, I am someone who is uh, absolutely committed to to my professional life and my personal life. And uh, I am married to a pediatric nurse practitioner who happens to work at Cincinnati Children's. And together we have four kids and two grandchildren. 
And I am uh, incredibly overjoyed as a grandfather uh, in the last couple of years. And so when I think about where I put my energy and my passion, it's around my family and it's around my professional life. And uh, my background is that I'm a pediatrician and I've always been invested in trying to make things better for kids. And that passion is actually what led me to come here. And I know that many of our patient families will be very interested to hear that you um, are a pediatrician. And because I think that at least our last couple of president and CEO, um, the people who held that position were not physicians themselves. So will you tell us a bit more about your early career and your clinical interests in pediatrics? Sure. So I knew uh, very early on in medical school that I wanted to be a pediatrician. In my early clinical rotations, one of the things that I observed is that many people are not very good about taking care of their own health issues, but they're much better about taking care of their kids. So people who won't necessarily remember to take their own medications are actually better about it in reminding their kids to do it. And I just thought that um, having patients and, and parents of patients who could work with me to achieve those health outcomes that, that I wanted would, be, uh, would suit my personality and my desires. And so I pursued a career in pediatrics. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at where I am today and where I started out. I'm a pediatric critical care physician. And... Um, I consider myself to have been an extremely good critical care doctor. I thrived in that environment of uh, intensity and adrenaline-charged uh, environment, and I loved being in that setting, although I never wanted anything to uh, go wrong or to have a child in that setting. I knew that they were going to happen, and so I wanted to be there. And then as I grew... Uh, both as a parent and as a teacher and, uh, and as observer of what was happening in the PICU, I started realizing that many of the kids didn't need to be in the intensive care unit if our system of health care had done a better job for them. Hmm. Now, there are kids who will always need to be in the mm -hmm. hospital and always need to be in the ICU if they're born with a heart defect, for example. But there are many other kids... Uh, because of the way our health system is set up, the systems failed them and they end up in the intensive care unit. And over time, I started uh, putting more and more of my attention and learning and teaching and desire into figuring out how to keep kids out of the intensive care unit. And so I've come full circle to, I spend a large amount of my time thinking about population health and how to someday make our services much less critical to the community. And that's a, an interesting path for many intensivists. Uh, if you didn't live it, it would be hard to understand how I came to be where I am and, and where I put a lot of my focus now. As you reflect on earlier in your career and the things that have happened that have gotten you here, is there a particular patient who you still think of or whose case represents 
something meaningful in that kind of path? Uh, Kate, that's a tough question, not because I don't have one or don't remember them. You there so there many. are many. Uh, there is one that stands out more than any other, and uh, she is a young lady that had a devastating uh, neurovascular accident, and she um, had what we later learned was that she had what was called locked-in syndrome, where she appeared for all intents and purposes to have been pretty close to brain death, and she uh, exhibited very little function. And what we realized during the time of her treatment is that she was completely intact in terms of her th thinking. She just was not able to express any of her thoughts, and she couldn't move to let us know. And I became very close with her family because we had weeks and weeks of discussions about what should happen uh, and you know, it was interesting. They had a tremendous impact on me. They never lost hope, uh, even at times when I wasn't sure that uh, this young lady was going to to recover. And one of the most meaningful things is working with that family over many months. And this young uh, girl started to recover and get better and better. And when I was taking care of her, she was probably 13 and at the time, and she's now, I think, 33 years old, and she went from, we were almost going to take her off life support to, she had a slow, gradual recovery, and then she got better and better, and then she dedicated her life to healthcare and helping others, and she went to um, school and went on to uh, be a nurse and then a nurse practitioner and to work at that hospital that uh, where I took care of her. And I have a picture of the two of us from her graduation from college that her parents invited me to because no one ever thought she was going to survive, let alone have that kind of life. And she remains an unbelievably dedicated, passionate caregiver and so her picture uh, has been on my desk uh, at four different offices over the last 12 years, and it, it's just always there. And what's interesting is it is in the middle of several pictures of my own kids, and when people come into my office, they just assume that she's one of my daughters and because she's been on my desk uh, with my own kids for that length of time. It's an absolutely remarkable story. I am certain her parents think of you often, too. Um, I think as a parent, to have a physician who is that dedicated to, um, to your child must be an incredibly special thing. That's one of the great things about uh, pediatrics is we get to help families that uh, they're most vulnerable, and then we get to see uh, some remarkable recoveries. And while... Not every child has a great outcome. When you look at what happens in adult medicine versus pediatric medicine, kids are so resilient, and they, they, um, they're much easier to work with than adult patients. No matter what happens with them, you can get a smile out of them. If you're nice to them, if, you're, if you play with them, you take some time, even when they're going through difficult times, they're often much more pleasant than their uh, adult <laughs> peer patients. So I know that we started off by saying that you are 
new in your president and CEO role, but you're not new to Cincinnati Children's. You've been here for a while in our um, COO capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, during the time that you've you've been here, what have you learned you love most about Cincinnati Children's? So let me go back to that vision work and how I ended up here, and then I'll get to that part of it. So when I did that vision work, one of the things that I realized is that when I was in my uh, prior organization, it was a a combined adult and pediatric Mm -hmm. place, and I ended up spending a large percentage of my time working on complex issues for adults. Mm -hmm. And while there was a lot of fulfillment in that, I ended up realizing my real passion was to put my entire focus on kids. And I was at the Cleveland Clinic for 20 years, and I expected at one point to retire from there. But when I came to the realization that I wasn't spending all of my time and energy around things that were meaningful to me, I um, ended up just getting a call from Cincinnati Children's and Michael Fisher and Michael was the prior CEO, and we had a mutual uh, acquaintance, and and my friend, who was a friend of Michael, said, you know, you need to go down and, and uh, talk to Michael. You need to see what they have going on there. I think it will uh, be something that's right up your alley. And I had my first interview when I came down, and I uh, will remember this um, for a long time. I had dinner with Michael at the end of the first day, and when I was driving back to the hotel, I called my wife and said, I think I just met my new boss. And so I was really excited to come and be able to put all of my energy on making things better for kids. And so I've been the COO here for six years, and um, there are so many remarkable things about this organization, and and, uh, it's hard to single out just one. But if I had to say what is the one thing that we do better than any other hospital that I've seen, it's to bring large teams together to focus on the needs of a, of a child. And when I say large teams, I'm talking about, for example, we have some of the best experts in the world on airway disorders. And many of those kids have airway disorders, breathing disorders, eating challenges, and so we have to bring together ear, nose, and throat doctors, general surgeons, gastroenterologists, speech and language therapists, nutritionists. We put teams together that work together better than any other hospital I've seen, and that's why we get some of the remarkable outcomes that we get, and that's why patients travel to us from all 50 states and from countries around the world. What about a surprise? Any surprises? Anything that were just totally different about Cincinnati than what you expected them to be? Um, you know, there have been a couple of things. The first uh, challenge for me moving down here is when people would ask me what school I went to, I would always answer college. <laughs> and they would say, where is that? I, I, No, 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 I mean high school. And it took me a little while to get used to that. Mm-hmm. The uh, I've come to love living in Cincinnati. We live in Madeira, and I have uh, great neighbors and friends and a really short, easy commute and and great public school system, so we couldn't be happier you know, where we are. I will say I haven't gotten used to Cincinnati-style chili yet, mm. although I do love graters. Mm-hmm. The chili is a bit of an acquired taste. 
I can certainly understand that. And you're not the first person who's moved here who's said that. Um, greater is as hard not to love, though. Yeah. So when you arrived as COO, if I understand this correctly, you were pretty much immediately asked to lead the project of building Location G, our new critical care building. Um, I'd love to know what that experience was like and how you're feeling now that the building is complete and there are patients in it. You know, that was probably one of the most challenging projects that I've ever worked on, uh, but probably one of the most exciting and fulfilling ones as well. And it's the vision of the organization to put together a building like that because there's really nothing like it anywhere in the country right now in terms of a 250-bed critical care building just for children. And that bold vision uh, is what drew me here. And uh, Michael and the team were talking to me about it while I was being interviewed and recruited. And it really had part of the reason why I decided to come here is if they think that big and boldly and want to change the lives for kids the way I thought that building would do, mm -hmm. I wanted to be here and be a part of it. And I had been fortunate enough uh, to be in an organization that did lots of large construction projects. So this wasn't my first significant construction project. And I got to learn from uh, groups and organizations that were really quite good at it. And, and I took what I knew and then what was really great about Cincinnati and put the two together. And what, what I mentioned what was really great is that collaboration and bringing large groups together. We did that with the critical care building. Mm. We had uh, an unbelievable construction partner in Messer, great architects, and we brought in doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers. We brought in patients. We brought in parents of our patients to work with us on what that building should look like. And we gave people the, the freedom to think big and say, we don't want you to just build a bigger version of what you already have. We want you to think about how do I want to deliver care in the best fashion for kids and for our employees and for the families who will be in there and think about that kind of approach to it. And we, we um, got a warehouse and we actually brought uh, the construction team there and we had them build life-size uh, versions of the rooms and we brought all of those teams and people that I mentioned to to the warehouse over a two-year period and practiced and learned and modified our approaches to the building based on input from all of those groups and we really came up with something that I think is a spectacular building but it's not just that it's a spectacular building because lots of places have beautiful buildings but the thought that went into the design um, was really something that I hadn't experienced mm. before and I've spent uh, almost every day since the building opened rounding in it and talking to families and I couldn't be prouder and what I hear from families about the impact particularly families who had been in the ICUs in mm -hmm. the B building, which happens to be, you know, our oldest clinical building and moving directly into the newest one. It's like night and day for them. Mm -hmm. And for our staff that are no longer cramped and have no place to 
do their work and have no off-site uh, areas because we had to sacrifice many of those spaces in the past to build new beds in, inside our old buildings. Uh, it's really been remarkable to see that the, uh, the thinking and that went behind it really has now come to life. And uh, it's just a building that I hope no parent ever has to be in, but if, you, if you're going to be in there, there's no better place to get critical care delivered in that setting with our, our team and our people. So I'm going to shift on you just for a little bit here. So two of the words, when you were telling us about your five words earlier, um, were husband and father. And if you're willing and if you think that they'd be okay with it, um, we'd love to know a bit about your family and who they are. Yeah, well, um, you know, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about uh, my family. And first, I've got to start with my wife. She's an amazing person. Uh, maybe the most caring, compassionate person that I know, um, and she is a pediatric nurse practitioner. There's no way I could be where I am today if I didn't have the support and understanding uh, of somebody who understands what it's like for me in the hospital, both as a critical care physician and then in the administrative roles that I've had. Um, and if you can believe it, she's even more passionate than I am around improving things for kids. And so in addition to her role as a nurse practitioner, she volunteers at ProKids and is a court-appointed special advocate for some of the more vulnerable kids in our community and brings that same kind of passion. So we share the same views on uh, it's our life's work to try to make things better for kids. Now, we have four kids, none of whom have gone into healthcare. I was curious. They, <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's because of what they saw with us or if because they we encouraged them to find their own passion. And uh, I think that, you know, it's really important as a parent to try to create opportunities for your kids to live their dreams, to live their passion, and, and to not expect them to have the same ones that you do. So my kids range in age from 33 down to 17, so there's a, a nice uh, gap. And my oldest at 33 has two kids, and um, I knew that I was going to like being a grandfather. I didn't realize I was going to love it as much as I do. Um, the, it just brings joy uh, to my life to, to just watch my daughter do some of the same family rituals that we did mm -hmm. with her own kids because when we were doing them with our own kids, there were times they're like, oh, Dad, do we have to? And is this important? And now to see her do the same thing with her own family... Um, is really fun and you know I'll take you I'll tell you a story something we did with our kids when they were uh, becoming adolescents and going from that always happy stage that younger kids generally have to thinking oh this isn't great or that isn't great we we noticed that there was this tendency at the dinner table to start having some negative conversations when they were in that 11, 12, 13-year-old range. So we started doing something that um, 
I called Roses Before th uh, Thorns. And mm -hmm. what that was is before anyone could say anything negative at the dinner table, they had to say three good things about their day. And then once you did that, then you could, everything else was, you know, you could address any subject you wanted. And what we saw is that it changed the tenor of the conversation so that when they did it, th talk about things that weren't uh, great, it wasn't so negative, and they could see that there were good things. And, you know, we're a pretty fortunate family compared to most, and I wanted them to understand that. And every once in a while, they'd complain and say, do you really have to do that? <laughs> well, we knew at a particular moment the impact it had on them. When our oldest went away to college, and then she came home for one of the breaks, and she brought a couple of her friends to stay with us. And so the first night when we were having dinner, uh, Denise and I talked about, well, you know, we'll skip that today because we don't want to embarrass our college freshman in front of her friends that we do this thing at, at dinner called Three Good Things About Your Day. And as we were getting into dinner, one of the uh, Megan's friends said, Dr. Davis, aren't you going to do the three good things about your day? And I was like, you know about that? And she goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> we want to do it too. And so that told me that even though there were times that my kids didn't uh, always appreciate it, that they understood the value of it. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised that my oldest doesn't start doing that with her own kids when they're a little older, because mm -hmm. right now they're three and one. So it's a little hard a little to early. do that. But the fact that she had told her college friends about it and that they wanted to participate was kind of a a moment where I thought, okay, I did a pretty good job as a parent. For sure. How did everybody deal with moving from Cleveland to Cincinnati? Did everybody come or were some people? No, so the three older ones, um, two were in Cleveland. Okay. And my 30-year-old son actually went to University of Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, did the co-op program, got a job right up out of college here in Cincinnati. And uh, he lives about two miles from us in Madisonville. We see him pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. um, so my two older daughters are in Cleveland. My youngest daughter is a senior in high school. Okay. And then my son, you know, lives uh, just down the street from us. But we used to come down to Cincinnati uh, quarterly because mm -hmm. Denise was in this learning network that the Heart Institute here runs, and they would have quarterly meetings here. And we would come down, and it was the one time I got to be the trailing spouse. I had no role in coming here. <laughs> and I would go see my son, who was an undergrad at UC at the time. And then we would drive back to Cleveland, and Denise would say, don't you want to work at a real children's hospital? And I always used to laugh and say, you know, we're great where we are. Things are um, going well in both our careers. And I always look back at those discussions and think if, if I had only known then what I knew now, I, I wouldn't have said, oh, no, you know. But uh, so my youngest is the one who moved with us. And at the time, she was in, uh, she was going to be starting seventh grade. So okay. she adapted probably faster than anybody and was really welcomed with, it was interesting. We were concerned that moving in middle school might be tough because you know, that's often the, mm -hmm. the mean girl's age that people think about. But her group of friends had been together, and it was a small group of, uh, of kids in Madeira that were always together. 
and they seemed to be bored with their own group. And when somebody new came in, they wanted to know everything about her. And I th was thinking she was going to have a hard time figuring out like where to sit at the lunch table because there would be groups. Mm -hmm. And what was hard was everybody wanted her to sit at the table because they wanted to talk to the new kids. So they made it easy for her, which made it easy for her mother and father to not worry so much about how that transition was going to affect her. It sounds like she adapted well. I'm glad to hear stories of seventh graders being welcoming. I have a seventh grader myself. I know that age. Um, how do you think your experience as a parent have influenced who you are as a doctor? Um, I would tell you that it has, uh, it impacted how I was as, as a physician because in medical school and residency and fellowship and in practice, there is this deference to expertise and, and that makes some sense. But what I learned and what I taught every trainee afterwards and I still tell people is, yes, the pharmacist is, an, is the content expert on pharmacology and you're the uh, expert on this aspect, but the parent is an expert on their child. Mm -hmm. So no physician, no nurse will ever know somebody's child as well as they know them. And so you have to respect their expertise and you have to listen to them. They may not be able to tell you what's wrong, but if they tell you, my child is different today, you have to take that seriously. Even if you look at them and think, I don't see anything wrong or it's not that serious. Mm -hmm. If a parent is telling you, my child is different, you have to listen and respect that expertise that they bring that you will never reach that level of expertise. And how do you think as both a learner and a teacher, and I think you gave us just a great example there of how being a teacher comes to life for you. Um, but how do you hope to continue to do both of those things in your new role? Um, you know, I, I, uh, it's interesting. One of the things my kids will occasionally criticize me on is they'll say, Dad, not everything needs to be a teachable moment. <laughs> or they'll say, you know, I need to be able to make my own mistakes. Mm. <clears throat> um, I come by it naturally. I always want to pass on what I've learned so that other people don't have the same challenges. But there is some truth to what my kids have said. Is they have to be allowed to make their own mistakes mm -hmm. because some of those mistakes really lead to significant growth. And your job as a parent and my job as a CEO is to give people that autonomy to make their own mistakes unless the mistake is one that you can tell is going to be uh, you know, significant. So when you think as a parent, you're often fine letting your kid play outside in your yard, but you don't want them playing on the sidewalk near a busy street. And so you, you think about, well, if they're playing in the playground or in their yard, they could fall and get hurt, but that's a risk that you can't avoid every risk, but letting them play near a busy street, probably not something you're going to do. And, and you learn those kinds of things as a parent. And then when you're in the work setting, you learn, or I think most leaders learn, um, how much autonomy to give people, how much guidance. And I see my job now mostly as just removing barriers for people and not actually doing the work or telling them how to do it, is just helping them do the work that 
they're the content experts on a lot of it. My job is just to make it easier for them to, uh, to achieve their goals. As far as formal teaching, I actually still, I'm an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon, and I teach uh, leadership development there at the master's level. And I'm actually teaching right now um, for January and February in, in the master's program in an online setting. And um, it's something that I just love to do. And people have asked me, are you going to, you know, why are you still doing that? And two reasons. One is I love to do it. And the other is I made a commitment to do it before I knew I was going to be the CEO. And something that I've taught my kids and that I try to live by is you honor every commitment that you make um, or you do your best to honor every mm -hmm. commitment that you make. So I've uh, been teaching there for 11 years now. And um, while it's a pretty busy time and I have to budget my time well to figure out how to do it, um, I do get some joy out of it. So I, I have figured out how to do that. And, you know, one of the things that, that I say often, and some people get tired of hearing me say it, is that when you really want to do something, you find a way. And when you don't want to do it, you find an excuse. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about budgeting time. And I'm curious what it has been like for you to be a leader in healthcare during the pandemic over these last 22 months in a time that none of us saw coming. Um, but just what are your reflections on where we've been and where we are? Boy, that is, uh, that's Sorry, a big that's a question. loaded question. Yeah. So one of the things I was just talking about with somebody as I was heading over here, uh, and it was somebody who is on our board. And he had only been on our campus twice in the two years that he was on our board. And we were reflecting on how the pandemic has impacted different people differently. And so for me, it hasn't been a huge impact on, on my day-to-day -day work. I've been on site essentially six days a week for the last couple of years, but that's the way I've always worked. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't change most of my day-to-day -day work other than a lot of what we talked about was COVID. Um, but then we had some volunteers this past week come in to help. And they're our employees. And they'd been working with us for two years. And they had never been on the Burnett campus. Mm -hmm. And it really caused me to think, wow, th this has had completely different impact for, uh, for groups. And um, so I consider myself as an individual really fortunate that my own life hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, but I know that the, it's had enormous impact on everybody in different ways. And so one of the things that I've tried to focus my efforts on is helping people understand that stress, although challenging, and people often talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, there is also a concept of post-traumatic growth. And what I've seen in our organization is tremendous growth in the last two years. One of the things that was most beneficial is that the pandemic forced us to understand we had to reorganize ourselves and think a little differently. Decisions had to be made really quickly, and so not every decision could be made at the senior leadership level, sometimes because there wasn't time and sometimes because there wasn't the content expertise required to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. 
So one of, as an example, early on in the pandemic, there was a shortage of masks and we had to decide when to roll out masking. And we had to rely on our head of supply chain who could tell us the likelihood of how we were to get additional masks and our infection prevention people. Mm -hmm. And so we really relied on them in ways that um, in the past, they weren't always had a seat at the table when decisions were made. So we um, flattened the hierarchy a great deal and we relied on experts and we relied on the talent and passion that we have in the organization to move more quickly than we ever had. And that's something that I really aim to keep in the organization, that um, not every decision has to be made at the senior table and that you need to allow the people who have content expertise to be involved in some of those decisions. And, you know, probably everybody in our uh, organization now knows who Dr. Josh Shafson is. Mm -hmm. And two years ago, probably 85, 90% of the organization wouldn't have known who he is. Another person that everybody knows is Mike Yurick, who is uh, the director of supply chain. Now, two years ago, everybody knew we had a supply chain, but I bet you they couldn't name a single person in there. And now I would bet you many of our senior leaders could name four or five different key people in supply chain. And so I think it's come to really... Uh, appreciation for the talent we have across the organization. And then something that's been going on the last couple of weeks is something that we put together two weeks ago called Operation One Cincinnati Children's, where we were having significant challenges with staffing due to people being out with COVID. And we were also having a large segment of the organization saying, I want to help. I'm willing to help. I just don't know how. So we tasked a team to think about how do we match that desire to help with the need that the organization had. And to say the response has been uh, great is a tremendous understatement. At this point, we've had over uh, or around 800 people agree and sign up as volunteers. And we have had probably over 6,000 hours covered. And seeing the response that that has uh, generated in the organization, both from the people getting the help, but I think it's had even more impact on the people giving the help. I've heard from so many of our employees that, uh, for example, business uh, leaders who volunteered to be a sitter uh, for a child <clears throat> come back and say, I know I'm at the right place because the mission we have is something that is just, uh, you know, I'm passionate about it. And that's the great thing about working at a children's hospital is so many of our people could work anywhere. They could work in an, an adult hospital. They could work in other industries and they choose to be at Cincinnati Children's. So they bring a level of passion that I haven't seen any other place I've worked. I am one of those employees who had the experience of volunteering to help, and I walked away from it with um, such gratitude for the opportunity to be in a space, um, clinic, in a clinical space that isn't part of my day to day. It really was a remarkable experience, and um, I've reflected myself 
a couple of times over the last couple of weeks just how I don't think our organization would have been able to pull together something like that a couple of years ago. I don't think that we would have um, said, yes, we can do this. And it's because to the point that you made, there's been such significant growth. Yeah, it's been really remarkable to hear the stories as much from the people who volunteered as the people getting help. And uh, one of the things we'll figure out in the next few weeks is how do we sustain that kind of uh, connection to the mission for all of our employees once the pandemic starts slowing down and our employees are back at full strength and not, you know, out with COVID, you know, we won't have the need that we have now. But uh, a chance to connect everybody's work to the mission is something that um, I will spend a lot of time with with a senior team in the next few weeks, figuring out how to sustain that momentum and use it. And, you know, we really are encouraging our leaders to think about how do we use this experience to build resilience, to build new skills, and to build more leaders and more capable leaders. And I think we've been really successful in that work, and that's why we've been able to continue to deliver great care to kids despite the stresses that we're seeing. And And I don't want to minimize in any way the challenges that this as the burden it's put on mm. patients, on families, on our employees, because this is something that, you know, none of us have really ever lived through anything like this for this extended period of time. Um, but I think as an organization, we will come out of this stronger than any other. Unless you have anything else that you'd like to share with our audience, I think that is a perfect note on which to end our end our conversation. But please, if, is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, I think I would close in saying that I am more excited than ever to be in the role that I'm in and the support that I've gotten from our teams and our employees in the first two months has me humbled. And I've told several people already, I actually think I have the best job in the country because my personal goals are to, to really drive change for kids. And I see no better place in the world than uh, here at Cincinnati Children's and no better job than being the CEO here. Well, we had so much fun talking to you today. I had so much fun talking to you today. Thank you for sharing all of this with us and with the patients and families who listen to the Young and Healthy podcast. Um, we appreciate your time. Really appreciated being invited and thank you for volunteering. Oh, you're most welcome. There will be more volunteering because I loved every second of it. With that, we're going to call Season 2, Episode 1 complete. Thank you again, Steve, for being here. And we'll see you next time on the Young and Healthy Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode was recorded on January 20th, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy Podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. And this episode was produced by Symphony Pitts. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.